Take a Bible and turn to the short little letter of Colossians. It's about halfway through the New Testament. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 984. I preached a couple of sermons from this chapter a few weeks ago and would like to focus today on verses 12 and following. As a young Christian in high school, I was introduced to this chapter by my youth director, and it immediately and still continues to be my favorite chapter in the Bible. Uh, I have taught it, read it, memorized it, um, used it in small group Bible studies um, for uh, about 40 years now. And when I was a college student, I served with Campus Crusade for Christ on one of their summer beach projects. And my job that summer was to mow grass at a, at a resort. If you ever tried to mow grass in the sand with a push mower, it's kind of a futile effort. But I would go over this passage. If then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and just over and over and over. And I continue as I did this week, to learn new things about it each time I uh, look at it more closely. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is in prison. He's in a Roman prison. Unlike some of the other letters he wrote, he's writing to a group of people he had never met face-to-face, the church in the ancient city of Colossae. They had been uh, inundated with false teaching. So chapters 1 and 2 deal primarily with pointing out the problems with what they were being taught and giving correct teaching. Now, in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul focuses on our position in Jesus Christ for believers and how we are to live as a result of that truth. Hear God's word beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That ends the reading of God's holy word. This chapter begins, as the Apostle Paul is saying, that any change that occurs in one's life in Christ happens from the inside out. If you are here today and you are investigating what it means to be a Christian, and I, though I know most of you, I never assume anything. I was grateful that a few weeks ago a young adult man came, and this was the first, he's from another religion in another country, this was the first Christian worship service he'd ever attended in his whole life. And I'm glad for that. But if you are investigating that, there'll be a temptation to think, well, to be a Christian means that your actions are different from others. Or that if you change, if I, to follow Christ means all I need to do is change my behavior. Uh, there, is, there should be behavioral change in, 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 in Christians. But that's not where it begins. When you look at the gospel in the Bible, when you look at the message of the Apostle Paul here, those actions flow from the inside out. So to understand Christianity, you have to understand that it's an issue of the heart, that God gives us new hearts, and as a result of those new hearts and a new relationship with him, the external part of the life changes. But if you just focus on the outside, then you're, you're, it's just moralism. It's just behaviorism. And it may be good behavior and good morals, but it doesn't hit the essence of the issue, which is the heart. That's why... Before you get into verses 5 and following, and now for today, verses 12 and following, and then for next time, verses 18 and following, that talk about marriage and relationships and with husbands and wives and so forth, you have to look at your standing before God. And that's what's addressed in the first four verses. A quick review of what we went over three weeks ago. Verse 1 says, if you've been raised with Christ, that is, when you put your faith in Jesus as your Redeemer, you come into union with him, as the word the Bible uses. You are buried with him. You are raised with him through faith by the power of God. He says you've been raised with Christ. Well, where is Christ right now? He is at the right hand of God. The right hand was the place and still is the place of honor and affection and privilege. And so if you put your faith in Christ then spiritually speaking, you have died with Christ, you've been raised with him, and now you are seated with him at the right hand of God. The Apostle Paul is saying, then those privileges and those honors and those affections that are given to Jesus at the right hand of God are now also bestowed on you. They are yours too. Note also what it says about Jesus, that he is seated at the right hand of God. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 10 that says, When this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus sat down, you can sit down. You can rest in the goodness and the grace of God because the final sacrifice for sin has been made once for all. And then verse 4 says we have died. Verse 3 says we have died. In the sense that the penalty for sin has been paid. And we will appear with him in glory. Jesus is coming back. And when he appears, we will appear with him. Now as we look at that, our response, we're told how we are to respond. Our response should be that we set our hearts on these things, it says in verse 1. Verse 2 says, set your mind on these things. Put it in concrete. Let it grip you. Let it consume you. 
what's being said here that God, God said hell awaited you and eternity apart from God. But God in his mercy rescued you, resurrected you, raised you, eternally loved you, and now glory is yours because of Jesus. That is where we begin. That is what we are to think about. You should know you who you are in Jesus. Once you know that, and once you every day live that and think about it, that then gives the motivation and the power to deal with the things we are to put off and the things we are to put on. But if you don't really know who you are in Christ, if you are unsure of your standing with God, then you're going to have a very difficult time trying to obey God in any other way than just some kind of legalistic, you know, I have to do this or God's going to get me. Uh, and then you won't be able to do it, and then you'll, then you'll be back in, the, the, John Bunyan called it the slew of despond. You'll just be despondent. So once you know that, when you know that where you stand with God, you're to put to death, beginning in verse 5 and following. We looked a couple of weeks ago. Put to death sexual sins of immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desire, greed, and idolatry. We're to put to death sins of anger and rage and malice and slander and so forth. And you do this because of who you are. Verse 9 says, You have taken off your old self and put on your new self. So for the believer, as we are tempted... As I am tempted, as you are tempted, and my, my trust is in Christ, my first response should be, that's not who I am. I'm not going to do that because that is not who I am. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the heart physician that turned preacher years ago, and his preaching was known really all over the world. He died about, oh, 25 or so years ago, maybe 30 years ago. In one of his books, he, he, he was a master diagnostician of the soul. And he said most of us would be far better off if we spent less time listening to ourselves and more time talking to ourselves. And so we need to talk to ourselves and start the day off perhaps saying, I've been raised with Christ and now I'm to seek the things that are above. I'm to set my mind on the things, not on the things that are on earth. And so we have to talk to ourselves. And I suggest talk to yourself, verses 1 to 4 of Colossians 3. Now then, how should we live? Verse 12 and following. He's going to talk about things to put on. Verses 5 and following, or what to put off. Sexual sin, sins of anger, so forth. Now what are we to put on? And he addresses us, put on then, as God's chosen ones. He addresses us as God's chosen ones. No one here, no one anywhere becomes a Christian solely, exclusively by their own choice. Rather, believers are those who have been chosen by God. He's referring here to the theological term, the doctrine of divine election, divine unconditional election. Whether you agree with that or not, and none of us completely understand it, it is taught all through the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 1 says that God shows us in him before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2 says we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Now what is the doctrine of election? If this is a phrase you've not heard or not heard explained. I want to give you the theological description of the doctrine of divine election. 
It states that God, before the foundation of the world, chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of Adam's race. He chose them to be the objects of his undeserved favor. These and these only he purposed to save. Let me read it again. That God, before the foundation of the world, chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of Adam's race to be the objects of his undeserved favor. These and these only he purposed to save. Now, God could have chosen to save all people, or he could have purposed to save no one. But he did neither. Instead, he chose to save some and to exclude others. Now, it's important to know that God's eternal choice of particular sinners unto salvation was not based upon any foreseen act or any kind of response that he saw on the part of those who were selected. But it was based exclusively, solely, on his own good pleasure and sovereign will. So his election was not determined by, nor was it conditioned upon, anything that we would do, but it resulted solely and completely from God's self-determined purpose. And that's why it's called unconditional election. God did not call us because of our good works. But as 2 Timothy 1 says, he called us according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. <clears throat> now, there are several reasons why this is, can be a lot to get your arms around and to understand and to accept. But I think one aspect of it is that there's no other sphere of life that I'm aware of where we are not chosen to do something or to be something that is unconditional. There's all, whether it's uh, t t a school honor, well, that's based, what, on grades or attendance or uh, whatever honor you're being awarded for that you, that was noticed in you. Maybe it's to play a sport, and that's very much performance-based, that you're chosen for the team based on something else, based on your ability or based on your age. Uh, whether it's a job that you are hired because coming out of college, because perhaps of your, your degree and your grade point average or who you know, whatever it might be, even marriage. We speak of unconditional love in heaven <laughs> that God has, and we hope to have some of that in our hearts. But I think when we get down to it, we choose marriage partners in our culture based on many things that are conditions that we look for. But when the Bible speaks of divine election, it is completely unconditional. It is not that God looked down, as some describe it, the tube of time and said, Oh, in 2012, I see so-and-so there, and I see that he will incline his heart to me, that he will choose to follow Jesus there at First Presbyterian Church on a Sunday morning. Now, based on what I see, I'll choose him. Well, it sounds nice, but that's conditional. That's God, that would be conditional election based on something that God foresaw. That's why it's called unconditional. Now, let me read you from Romans 8. It says, Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I love the way that John Blanchard, who has preached here at various times through the years, I like the way he takes that passage and he expresses it so well, almost in a backward, working himself backwards. He says this, If you should ask me how it is possible that I should stand glorified with my Lord, the answer is that I am justified. If you should ask me how it is possible that I should be justified, I would answer that I was called. And if you ask me why I should be called, the answer is that I was predestined. And if you should ask me why I was predestined, the answer is he loved me. And if you should ask me why he loved me, I have no answer. My word gives way to worship. So the Apostle Paul calls us God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, set apart for God. Now I would just, these concluding words on election, because it's not some cold fatalistic doctrine. It is based on God's incomprehensible love for his elect. And so how should understanding this affect me as a Christian? How should it affect you? Well, it crushes our pride. It makes sure that there's no room left for pride. We can't hold our head up and look down at another person because we've experienced God's grace. It was unconditional. It should cause us to want to exalt God because the doctrine itself exalts God. It makes it clear that salvation is all of God. It is not 98% of God. It is all of God. It produces joy and gratitude in the Lord. And it makes one bold and courageous, for no one can snatch me out of his hand. Take my life. I will be with God. So it gives that boldness, and we have no need to fear anything or to fear anyone. And it's motivational. And one of the things that motivates us to do is to put these things on, beginning in verse 12. Put on then, clothe yourselves. Let me go through the list briefly. Compassionate hearts. We see that in Christ when in Matthew it says he went through all the towns and villages teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every sickness and disease. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It wasn't just sympathy where you say, oh, I feel bad that that person feels bad. No, his heart was stirred. It's a strong desire to relieve the suffering. That's a compassionate heart of Christ. Second, he says, put on kindness. It puts the needs of others before your own. Often we can think of the contrast of these. The opposite of kindness is being harsh, just harsh with people. Kindness is primarily seen in the example of the Good Samaritan who stopped to help the man who had been robbed and beaten and left for dead. That's kindness. It's the picture of how God deals with us, and therefore we should deal with others. Put on humility. Humility is not a poor self-image or being down on yourself or always beating yourself up. It's knowing who you are and the source of your strength. Jesus was humble. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Put on a heart of meekness. That's the opposite of rudeness. It's considerate. It has self-control. I like the picture that it comes from. It's harnessed strength like a tamed animal. Some of you have horses, and that horse is far stronger than you are, and if it wanted to, it could probably hurt you pretty bad. 
But it is restrained. It is tamed. It is restrained inner strength. That's what meekness is. Christ was meek. We're to put on hearts of patience. It means to be long-tempered. It's the opposite of resentment and revenge. And so we're to be patient with other people. The patient person does not get angry like that. It's the pattern through the, the New Testament. And we are to put these things on because God has shown these things to us. So if God so loved us, we ought to love one another, we're taught in the New Testament. So we put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and so forth, because God has shown that toward us. We are to mirror his character. So if someone wants to see the patience of God, they ought to be able to find a follower of God and say, oh, that's what it looks like. If someone wants to know what's godly humility, they say, oh, I see that in that person's life. That's what godly humility is like. So how can you know if you're clothing yourself with these attitudes? He goes on. He tells us where to bear with one another. The way we know whether our hearts reflect the heart of Christ is because we will see it in relationship with one another. When God redeems a person, when he chooses them, and then they are made right with him in verses 1 to 4, co-resurrected, co-seated, co-ascended with Christ, and so forth, then he puts us in the laboratory of the new community of the church. Now, in my campus crusade background, they had, a, they had a term that I liked. It said, when you are adopted into God's family, you're adopted into a forever family. We will live together for eternity. We are part of a family that will not die out, uh, but it will last forever. And so we need to learn to live with one another. And so he starts with, not of how great everything is, the very first admonition here is bear with one another. It means to endure, to put up with. It's the opposite of when you are quite irritated with another person and you just say, that's it, I've had it. And you're writing them off in your mind and maybe writing them off to their face as well. That's the opposite of bearing with one another. Bearing with one another is acknowledging, yes, there are differences, yes, there are irritations, yes, we don't see eye to eye on this, or we rub each other wrong, that's where we are to bear. So the issue is never whether there is conflict among believers, it's how we attempt to resolve that conflict. Now, I am no enemy of denominations. I hear people say, well, if there's to be unity, that the denominations are an expression of the lack of unity in the body of Christ. I just don't think that's a proper understanding. There are distinctives with beliefs and so forth. So I don't, I don't see that fractures the unity of the body of Christ on earth at all. But here I, I've got another aspect on that, and, and I read it years ago when I first became a pastor, and I've seen it practiced through the years, and that is that normally... The main reason believers move from church to church within the same city is because of unresolved conflict. It's usually they've had a falling out with someone at the church, and rather than try and resolve that conflict, they move churches. People rarely say it, but when I sit and talk with couples sometimes, or fam, you know, a, a guy, or a, and we, when we really get to talk about why they think they ought to leave this church and go to another church, or and I always check when people are coming to this church from another church. Now tell me about your background or what. Often it's, often there's unresolved conflict. Well, we have to practice what Colossians 3 says. We are to bear with one another. 
and we're to forgive each other. So the, the new community, the forever family, the local church, which is an expression of that, should be a mutually forgiving fellowship. We will sin against one another. We will sin greatly against one another. But the standard of forgiveness, well, here's what one person, how they described it. The level to which we forgive others, rather than demanding that our own wrath be satisfied, that level is the clearest indication of how fully our hearts have been gripped by the gospel. So have you been gripped by the gospel? Uh, when I first, when we first moved here, within just a matter of weeks, I had greatly offended a man in the church. A man who was only an acquaintance. I just had met him. And it would seem rather trivial of what it was over. It was about an invitation to do something that I declined on. And there was a lot of emotion behind it from his part that had nothing to do with me, but it was things going on with our, with on our, within our denomination and, and lots of things. But it was bad. It was real bad. And I don't like unresolved conflict. Normally I can go to someone and talk to them, uh, but it just got worse. Each conversation, each letter just made it worse and worse and worse over a period of a couple of months to where it was like it was so bad, the tension was so... I, we could not even talk. So this went on. I felt I had done everything I could. The Bible says, as far as possible to you, be at peace with all men. I'm sure he thought I had not and that he had done everything. We were just... We were loggerheads. Fast forward over six years later. Uh, Right when I was going to become pastor of the church, one of the older men on the search committee came to me and said, you know, I had a conversation with so-and-so the other day, and I didn't realize there's a real rift between y'all. I said, yeah. I said, I'd like to see. I said, I felt I'd done everything I could to fix it. And this older man in his pastor way said, do it again. Talk to him another time. So I set up an appointment, went to his place of business, and talked. And I basically said, and he said, it was mutual. He said, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how, I mean, this is like a knot, and it's all knotted up, and I don't even know where to start to unwrap it. And I said, however, in any way I've sinned against you, I, I ask your forgiveness. I don't know what more to do. He asked me a lot of questions. I tried to explain things, and he talked, and he gave me his forgiveness. He's dead now, but in the years that followed, he in the years that he lived, after I became the pastor, no one in this church was kinder, more encouraging to me or my family than that man. Now, it's hard for me to get through this, but you want to talk about the power of God in verses 1 to 4? That's it. I'd love to see some miraculous healings in our church. That would be the power of God. But that's the power of God. And I would assume in a group this size, there may be someone here, maybe not, Carrying what I just described, but it goes back more than six years. It may go back to your childhood. It may go back to five years ago, ten years ago. And maybe you did do everything you could to try and resolve it. Maybe you didn't. But maybe you just thought it's impossible. You're right. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But that's what we are being told to do here, bear with one another, forgive one another, is backed up by, is built on the foundation of, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, so forth, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. So I'd urge you to, to ask God to supply that where it's needed. 
Then he gives a couple more priorities. I'm almost out of time. He mentions the peace of Christ, which he says should rule in your hearts. It's the idea of an umpire, that an umpire rules over a game. They're supposed to enforce rules. They're, they're supposed to keep fights from happening. They're supposed to declare things. It says the peace of Christ. In other words, back to my example, I could go to talk to this man without much human hope that he or I could work out our differences, but I could go with it. Look, I'm at peace with God. You claim to be a believer. You're at peace with God. Now, because we are both at peace with God, that peace should rule like an umpire over this situation. That's what it means when it says, let it rule in your hearts. And then he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it permeate. And he's talking corporately there to a church, to a local church, but there's personal application. It should rule in our hearts individually, but then corporately it should permeate and overrule everything that we do. It should be the word of God. And we can express that even as we teach one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But I want to close with the phrase that's stated over and over in verses 15, 16, and 17, and that is the phrase, and be thankful. If we are walking with Christ, we are to be thankful. I asked the early service, but I won't take the time to ask you now, how many of, how many of you own at least some version of a Matthew Henry commentary? About half the hands went up. Matthew Henry lived a, a few hundred years ago, and he was a pastor and a Bible teacher, and he was robbed one day. He was mugged on the street. And later he wrote in his journal, Let me be thankful. First, because I've never been robbed before. Second, because although he took my wallet, he did not take my life. Third, although he took everything all I possessed, it was not much. <laughs> Fourth, I should be thankful because it was I who was robbed and not I who did the robbing. He was thankful for a changed heart. One of the best ways to express gratitude and exercise the admonition to give thanks is through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in your hearts to God. And so I hope you sing through the day in your heart and even out loud. I close with the premier example I think of in the Bible, and that's in Acts 16. It's the arrest of Paul and Silas. It says the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged, not lightly flogged, severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Their feet are put in stocks. I'm paraphrasing now. But then the text says about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. It wasn't a corporate worship service, folks. This is what they did. That is how they responded to a severe beating, being unjustly thrown in jail, and having their feet in stocks. They were praying and singing hymns to God. And I love the last part. And the other prisoners were listening to them and probably thinking, what in the world is going on with those guys? Are you continually giving thanks to God? Would others call you a thankful person? Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that you have the power to change hearts like our own, hearts that are so easily swayed that 
that tell us there's a way that seems right, but the way thereof are the ways of death. May our trust be in Jesus. May we, may we recognize each day who we are, every hour of the day, as we face temptation, as we face it in a multitude of, of fashions. May we see that that is not who we are. We've not been born again for that purpose. And we pray you'd give us thankful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.